0: Good morning, let's pray. Father, we just pause uh, to give you glory for what you're up to. God, I thank you so much uh, for Daniel and for our whole worship team and how they lead us to your throne and God, how they preach your word, even in the music. What a blessing it is. And God, I pray that you would use your word to teach us this morning by your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, that should have gone on before the prayer, but here we go. We will be in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll continue through Hebrews. I know it's kind of spotty. I, you know, I speak once in a while when uh, Mark asked me to, so uh, it may be hard to remember. I'll try and remind you a little bit of what's gone on in chapter 1 as we go forward. But my first question today for you is, who is trustworthy? Who is trustworthy? Think about it. Who's trustworthy? Um my wife's father passed away just a few years ago, uh, but he often used this illustration, and I think it was uh it made some sense today, so here's an illustration he used often. Have you heard about the illustration about priming the pump? So there's a man out in the middle of the desert, about to die, trying to reach that next water, and he comes across a pump in the middle of the desert. And it's got this little 20 ounce bottle of water. And it says on it that if you'll pour it down the pump and pump enough times, the pump will be primed and you'll have water. You'll have an endless supply of water. You can fill up all your extra bottles and you'll have water to get to the next place. And he has to decide whether that's trustworthy. If you come across a 20 ounce bottle of water and you are dying of thirst, I think the temptation for me might be to drink that 20-ounce bottle of water. I need some water in my system. And he has to decide whether he's going to trust that note, whoever wrote it. So let's say that that was signed, the American media. I saw a study this week that said 29% of Americans trust the media. I don't know who those 29% are. <laughs> I haven't found very many of them recently. Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of trust between America and our media, right? How about if it said uh, our public university professors in our humanities departments, in the English department, in the social sciences departments, you're going to trust that note. These days, I don't know if it's so trustworthy. How about our public uh, high schools, junior highs, the teachers there? I taught public high school for years in Dallas, and I taught social studies. And I feel like I was maybe the only one in the department who cared about truth. That wasn't the focus. That wasn't even mentioned. What's true before I walk in and teach about you know world war 1 I. I need to teach what i want to teach what's true so we're going to trust that note uh how about our political leaders <laughs> wouldn't we define many of our political leaders maybe most as kind of ones who kind of flip flop based on the tide and whatever the uh, whatever opinion says yeah i believe that now i don't know if i would trust that if they wrote me that note about priming the pump um, and maybe this is going to step on toes a little bit, but for sure I would say that even pastors and teachers across America and across the world, it's hard to know what to trust these days. Um, uh, we'll get into why. You, most of you know why, but 90 plus percent of pastors and teachers, you're going to have to really check what's being said there. And I'm thankful. Uh, most of the teachers that I have over me here at Open Door, Tim, uh, Roger has taught my Sunday school class, Mark, Corey, when he fills the pulpit, there's a reason that they are trustworthy. And uh, you know the answer. But that's kind of where we're going today with Hebrews chapter 2. Oh, and one more example there with uh, pastors. I've got a my best friend from college His brother-in-law is a pastor in South Carolina, and his name's Mark. No relation to Mark. Okay. Um, (laughs) His name's Mark, and three months ago, I got a call from my best friend, and he said, well, Mark's having to step down uh, because of an inappropriate relationship with someone in his own church. And uh, a lot of the people at his church want to split off, and they want him to keep preaching. They want him to start another church. And there are some other churches calling that want him to come and be the pastor. <laughs> Not all of our pastors and teachers are trustworthy. We have to consider that. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 2, maybe we can consider together who's trustworthy. <clears throat> First two times we uh, I, I taught through a little bit of chapter 1. We talked about God has spoken in the first four verses of hebrews chapter one god has spoken jesus is the best revelation is what we see there we see some key attributes of who christ is you can read through them but for sure he is the superior revelation from god he is the final revelation from god in that time period, uh, in that age, uh, I'll just say final because I think there's some finality that you see there. Um, there are a few other things that we saw and he, we see that he revealed the Father to us. And then as we got into the next 10 verses there through verse 14, the end of chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is better than the angels. Because he was, cre- he is creator. Because he is eternal. He's the son. He is to be worshiped. He's all-powerful and he is preeminent. We see all of those things right there in Hebrews chapter 1. So as we we move forward into chapter 2, we need to remember Hebrews was written to believers. We need to remember that Hebrews was written to Jewish believers and Jewish believers who were struggling. They had um, issues in their lives going on that were challenging. They, They were in the middle of being tested, is what we might say. Hebrews is really summarized as Jesus is better. Therefore, you can live for him and not for the old ideas of Judaism. So here we go in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, 1 through 9. We may taste uh, their chapter or verse 9, but we're going to get at least those first eight verses. Today's passage is a warning passage. Um, uh, the first four verses are a warning passage, eight passages like this in the, the epistle of the Hebrews that contain some signature elements. I want you to look for these as we read these first four verses, a call to action, a connective okay, like four or something that connects. And then, uh, finally a statement of negative consequences if the call to action is not heeded. So here we go. Chapter two, verses one through four. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So, verse 1, therefore, based on what has been said about Jesus. So, I know you've heard it before, a lot of pastors say, when you see a therefore, you've got to say, what is the therefore? Therefore, you've heard that, right? Um, So, that's how we start there. In the King James, it would be, therefore... Okay, so because of something, we have to say because of what? Um, and the answer to that is actually kind of unique. A lot of times, when you see a therefore, it just references the last chapter, or maybe the last two or three verses. Uh, sometimes in, in uh, Romans, I think Romans twelve one references the first 11 chapters. <laughs> it says, because of these 11 chapters, and all of these things you just learned about salvation, Now we need to present our bodies, you know, Romans 12. But this, therefore, is a little unique for this reason. Therefore, because of this, we must pay much closer attention. Because of what? He's actually talking about verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2 is what his therefore is about here. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. That's what the therefore references back to. God has spoken in His Son, therefore, and you can continue in verse uh, you know, two verse one, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, because God has spoken in His Son, with finality, with finality. And then we see there, in verse one, we see that call to action. We see a call to action. We must play, pay, excuse me, we must pay much closer attention. And then we see a connective. In the King James, it's lest. Uh, But in my New American Standard, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. So that we will not. That's the connective. And then finally, the negative consequence. If the warning is not heeded, if we don't pay much closer attention, what's going to happen? We will drift. We will drift away. This is the first warning of the book of Hebrews. Don't drift away. Many arguments related to this passage uh, and these warnings, passages, in Hebrews, um, uh, there are a lot of arguments about these passages is the idea. The key here is the idea, drift away. What does that mean? Okay, it's July 4th weekend, right? July 4th weekend. Will there be any drifting happening in the great state of Missouri on this fine summer July 4th weekend? Uh, if you've ever been down a river, you know, maybe floating Yeah, there's going to be a little drifting happening, uh, Andrew and Nathan, any drifting happening this weekend? No, maybe not. They did a little drifting and winning a race right now being in a race last, uh, fall last fall. Yeah. Okay. When I think about drifting, that's what I think about. And that's one definition for this term. Drift away is being out on the water, being a little bit aimless, In the way that you're drifting. Uh, The idea here is that they are floating aimlessly by something very important. So that we will not drift away. So that we will not drift away. So that we will not float aimlessly by something very important. So is this passage about... Now this is an argument out there. A lot of these Hebrew warnings passages are about losing your salvation. That's the idea. A lot of people believe that. Is that what's going on here? We'll see more of why I don't think that can be true as we go forward here. And the author in verses uh, 2 and 3 continues the idea for us. So, we have to pay attention to not drift away. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression, excuse me, transgression and disobedience received a just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's go with that. This word spoken through angels could be a confusing idea. What's going on there? This word spoken through angels. I thought Jesus said it. I I thought God said it. What, What are they talking about? The word spoken through angels. Okay, so in Deuteronomy 33, as you see up there, Acts 7, Galatians 3, you can take a look at those if you'd like to. But the idea that's there is why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels. So we see that that is a biblical idea. Um, And the law was given among surrounding angels. That's what we see in God's word. So when God gave the law to Moses, somehow he let angels, messengers, be involved in that giving of the law. So that's what's going on there. And angels surely spoke the law as well as they ministered. God sends them out as ministering spirits. That's what we see at the end of chapter 1. And uh, he continues there that we can't escape a just recompense, or that they couldn't in their day as well. Some say this is eternal death or loss of salvation. Uh, That's what we see there. The idea is here in 2 and then the beginning of 3. beginning of 3 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, so this new measure of a just penalty isn't specified here. doesn't say what that penalty was. How will we, uh, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape what? How will we escape um, the just penalty there you see at the end of verse 2? So what is this just penalty? It's not defined. At least right here in these verses, it's not defined. I think if we read the breadth of the book of Hebrews, we see what that penalty might be. Um, but what could it be? Uh, this new measure of just penalty isn't specified, but how are Old Testament believers saved? Old Testament believers were saved by faith. By faith, not works. We were just looking at that in our Sunday school class this morning in Galatians. It was beautiful. I was like, Tim, stop. <laughs> They're going to know all the answers, Tim. <laughs> No Israelite or Gentile who followed God's ways in the Old Testament ever followed the whole law. None ever lived up to the standard set by the law. Galatians uh, tells us that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Paul doesn't say anymore. He says, he says that this has never happened and it's never going to happen. No f- flesh is justified by the law. And then James 2.10 says, Forever keeps, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. One stumble. One time. As Tim was teaching this morning, he said, So if you're reading this, you have already, like, there's no one who ever came into contact with the law for the first time and said, Oh, I could probably do it. Not one. They would have to read it and say, Oh, I'm condemned. I've already sinned. I can't keep the whole law. It's impossible. Uh, in Kelly and I's time in Israel, we watched people walking our streets every single day because our where we live backed right up to an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. We watched people daily walking around thinking they could keep the whole law, believing wholeheartedly that they could keep the whole law. At the bus stop, you would see them in their prayer books just going through it, focused, Not willing to talk to a person because they had to keep the whole law. Really? They really believed that. That was their their thought. That's how they could please God. They could keep the whole law. Impossible. So, if those things are true, if what Paul says is true, if what James writes is true, there's no comparison For us to look at here and say, well in the Old Testament they, they kept the whole law and that's how they were approved by God, no. And if they didn't keep the whole law, they were condemned to hell. No. Did Abraham keep the whole law? Did Moses keep the whole law? No, no, did Daniel keep the, no. No, no, and no. They were saved by their faith. So when someone takes us to verse 3 and says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And they say, well, if our sin is big enough, if we do something bad enough, we're losing our salvation. They're wrong because the comparison is not there. That's not how Jews were saved. They weren't saved by their works. It didn't happen. It's also on note that the author uses we. Not to... It's not written to unbelievers. He's not writing about just unbelievers, obviously. He's not writing about unbelievers at all, in my opinion here. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's including himself. So I know the... You know, they argue about who wrote Hebrews. Who wrote Hebrews? Uh, Maybe Paul. Maybe Apollos. Maybe Luke. Maybe any one of those guys. If you want to put them in the grouping called unbelievers, we've got a problem. That's not happening. He says, we, he includes himself and says, if I neglect so great a salvation, there's going to be a problem. He says that, but he's not saying I'm losing my salvation. You're going to tell me that Paul or Luke or Barnabas, like lost their salvation. No, not happening. The warning here is against what? What's the problem? Uh, how how shall we escape uh, if we, does it say, reject? So great a salvation. Is that what it says? It's not what I read. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If a person gets in trouble with the law in America for neglecting a child, does the child exist? Uh, Yeah. The child exists if they're neglecting something. They have something. To, To be able to neglect something, you have to have it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Okay, so that's the issue here: is neglecting their salvation, not losing their salvation, or rejecting their salvation, as many have taught and still teach. Um, Warren Wearsby says about neglect, and this is this is important. This is beautiful. I loved when I read this. I said I got to share this. It's just a ver- uh, it's just one sentence, two sentences. More spiritual problems are caused by neglect than perhaps any other failure on our part. We neglect God's word prayer, worship with God's people, and other opportunities for spiritual growth, and as a result, we start to drift. And I read it, and I was convicted. And that's that's me. I'm reading, where's me? How do you know about me? How, how do you, like, I've never met you. How do you know me? More spiritual problems come from neglect than from any other Sin, And I think that might be some of the story of American Christianity at times. Neglecting so great a salvation. We believe. We're followers of Christ. We're His. And for this week, I just wasn't really even thinking about praying for my brothers and sisters. I don't know what happened. I don't know why I didn't think about that. The neglect that can come into play. So, we do have to answer the question... What is this, uh, what is this uh, just penalty? Because whoever wrote this, whatever, whoever the author is, they used this idea that there was a just penalty in the Old Testament when they didn't pay attention to the law. There was a just penalty. And now we see, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So there's some kind of just penalty in the author's mind going on. And my thought is that maybe what it 's talking about is temporal losses, losses here on earth could be talking about losses uh, um, things that God will bless us with in the world to come. could be talking about when we rule with christ we 'll be at a lower place, but my thought is it 's talking about temporal losses, so losses like loss of fellowship is that a loss it 's huge loss we 're not fellowshipping with the lord and we 're not uh, we 're <laughs> We're not connecting. We're not abiding. That's a huge loss. Those moments in your life when you look back and you say, oh, yeah, I wasn't really connected with God as much in that time period. I wasn't abiding. That's a, that's a loss. It's a loss for me. I look back at those times and say, wow, that was a rough moment. I was missing something. Lack of growth. That's a loss. Constant necessity of milk. Uh, as is, uh, we'll see going forward in Hebrews later on. They talk about uh, the writer talks about that. The author, the need for milk. Uh, maybe sickness is mentioned in Corinthians. Even physical death mentioned as a disciplinary method of God, uh, but not spiritual death, not loss of salvation. It doesn't happen. Um, a good father disciplines his children. Does this not fit the context? Is this not how the Israelites received just recompense? At the end of verse 2, they received a just penalty. And believers in the New Testament, we receive a just penalty. And I think it's in our daily lives. We lose out on some things when we drift, when we don't care for what God has given us, when we don't look into uh, God's Word. I think that could be that just recompense. And as we continue here in verse 3, 3b... Three After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by the gifts of the Spirit, according to his own will. If I were to ask you about your great salvation, how long would we end up talking? After it was first, uh, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I hope we would end up talking a long time. And then in the second half of verse 3 and in verse 4, we see two key issues that are treated here. And neither word is found in the text, but I think these are the key ideas uh, in all of 2, 1 through 9. I think the key ideas are found right here. Um, The ones that are the focus. And the ideas are what I would call canon. Or the writing of God's word, how did we know these 66 books are what God wants us to study? And we see the issue of apostleship. The author says that these things were spoken by the Lord, confirmed to the writer and readers by the apostles who had been with Christ and heard. Now that's not not how it literally reads, but I think that's what he is saying. After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us... So we have to decide who the us is, by those who heard, who are those who heard. I think those are the apostles. And it was confirmed to us, those who are, you know, the Hebrews and the writer, he says us, so he's not an apostle. Therefore, I don't think Paul wrote this book. But anyway, uh, moving past that, not only did God give us the word, Jesus himself as a message and confirm it to the readers of the apostle and the apostles. He also confirmed it by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. These were many times over the confirmation necessary in the Old Testament. They're required to have two witnesses. They need to have two witnesses in a court of law. But here we find we have numerous witnesses. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. And by the signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. So God confirmed His Word. God confirmed His Word. And this is the stated purpose. this is key. This is the stated purpose of these signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Spirit confirmation of god's word bearing witness these verses three and four are some of the key verses in all of the bible when we talk about what how do we define this his word these 66 books how did we choose how did we know martin luther did not like the book of james he wanted it out a lot of believers across the centuries a lot of theologians said esther it doesn't mention god Throw it out. How do we know? How do we know? Did some men just get together and choose? I like this one. And, uh, no, not that one. Throw it out. Is that what happened? We have to understand this. I would argue very strongly, no, that's not what happened. That's what a lot of non-believers, at least, believe about God's Word. But men got together and just said, oh, this one looks good, that one looks good, oh, this one looks good, That's what they think. That's what they think, that we believe. A bunch of men chose. A bunch of men chose. It's a problem. No. Men recognized the books that were inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Books inspired by the Holy Spirit of God are different. Books written by God himself are different. And men recognized those books. Oh, this one's different. It's in. God. They were recognizably different. They were inerrant. They were written by apostles who were by definition, had spent time with Christ. Or those who had spent close time with those apostles who took information from the apostles and wrote it down. That's who wrote these books and that's how they were chosen. The truth of salvation comprising comprising the New Testament scriptures was, the truth of salvation was, first, spoken by Christ. Second, confirmed by those who heard, the apostles. So what does that mean? Why am I on this soapbox? No new revelations now. Any new revelation would need apostolic authority. It would need to be confirmed to us by those who heard. That means they had to be with Jesus. If we don't have someone in our midst, in the United States, in the world today, who was with Jesus, then no new revelations now. So if we know God's Word was recognized partially based on apostolic authority, how did this apostolic authority work? Well, we have the 12 disciples. Judas Iscariot, we lose one there, right? Down to 11. They asked God to choose. One to replace. And Matthias is chosen uh, by lots. And then Paul was added. So you could say 13, kind of. Not really, but kind of, right? When James, the brother of John, died in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he's not replaced. We don't see James being replaced by a new apostle. We don't keep adding to the apostles. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 tell us that the apostles were part... What part of the church? They were the foundation of the church. When is the foundation laid? I think we all know. At the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, is what Ephesians, Colossians, and Galatians tell us. He's an apostle by the will of God. He's not sent from men, but Jesus Christ and God the Father, we're told. He's not sent from men. He sent from Jesus Christ. Nowhere in Scripture did Jesus, the apostles, or any other New Testament writer set forth the idea of apostolic succession, which the Roman Catholic Church would teach, and which a lot of charismatic churches would say, we have new apostles. God has to keep giving us more apostles, more apostles. Jesus ordained the apostles to build the foundation of the church. That was the purpose. What is the foundation of the church that the apostles built? It's the New Testament. The record of the deeds and teachings of the apostles and of Christ. The church does not need apostolic successors. The church needs the teachings of God. The church needs the teachings of God. Through the apostles, accurately recorded and preserved. And this is exactly what God has provided in his word. What is mentioned in Scripture is the idea that the Word of God was to be the guide that the church was to follow. That's what we are told, Acts twenty thirty two, The Word of God. As Paul leaves Ephesus, he commends them to the Word. He does not commend them to some future apostles. It's the Scripture that was to be the infallible measuring stick. For teaching and practice, that's what Second Timothy chapter three tells us. It's the Scripture that the teachings are to be compared to. Acts chapter seventeen. Apostolic authority was passed on through the writings of the apostles, not through apostolic succession. As we continue, there are signs and wonders and various miracles. Some of the sign gifts of the Spirit they ended. When their witness and the confirmation was complete. Because that was their purpose. To witness to what God is revealing. That was their purpose. And you have to ask yourself, how often today when we hear about supposed signs, wonders, and miracles, are the claimants saying that those happenings are testifying to the authenticity of the revelation we already have? How many times would we hear about somebody was raised or this other wonder happened? Do they say, and because of that, we know that God's given word is true? In my opinion, every time I've heard it, I've never heard them say, well, because of that, we know that God's 66 revealed books that He has given us are true. They're adding two. Before we move, to the last half of our passage which is a lot shorter uh, for me at least (laughs) this is where we must drop anchor so that we don't drift this is what we must not drift past God's authoritative word if we treat the final revelation of God in Christ like something that we should drift on by on our raft on a sunny day in the Ozarks We've got a problem on our hands. The one trustworthy word out there is God's word. How is our attention to it? If that pump that was being, if that note was signed, the word, you would trust it, especially if the W was capitalized, right? If we know it's from God, if we know it's from his son, then we know it's trustworthy. Now, the final five verses are not quite so heavy with theological underpinnings, but uh, they make up for that with beauty, I would say. So five through nine, connect back to chapter one again, and they continue the thought that uh, chapter one ends with at the end, like 14, 13, 14. So five through nine, here we go. For he did not subject the angels, the world to come. He did not subject it to them. Concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the Son of Man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And then we're going to touch verse 9, I think. But we do not see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 5 tells us that he meets uh, this objection. He meets an objection that an, often a Jew would have had in that time period. He meets their objection. Uh, the objection they have it is that Jesus appeared to be far inferior to the angels. When he was on earth here, well, he was a man. Well, he was inferior to the angels. The angels are higher than Jesus. Oh, no. Oh, that's a problem. So he meets that objection. Uh, he was a man of humble condition. He was poor, despised. He had none of the external knowledge that was shown to Moses. That's what they would have said. Uh, there's a Qumran community that was famous in that era, uh, down near the Dead Sea, that together taught he was just a man. He was just a man. Um, and they taught that the coming age would be marked by the rule of Michael the archangel. And his angelic subordinates, Michael's going to rule, not humans. So there's, a, there's an issue there. That was common thought in their community. But Psalm 8 is quoted here, uh, verses 6 through 8. And when we survey the heavens and contemplate their glories and think of the exalted rank of the other beings we may well inquire why has such an honor been conferred to man that's the idea that they're getting at what is man in verse 6 what is man the son of man that you're concerned about him it's a surprise to them little while uh, he was made for a little while lower than the angels for a little while and then we see that he was crowned with glory honor—that That is, with exalted honor. Glory and honor here are nearly synonymous. The meaning is that elevated honor has been conferred on human nature. On human nature. Over the works of my hand, all things in subjection. God gave dominion to Adam. That's what it says there. And when it says, over the works of thy hands, uh, all things are in subjection. God gave dominion to Adam... But we do not see it yet in the kingdom. Okay? So when it says, but we do not see it yet, it's talking about it's going to happen. It's the future. It's still going to happen. It's going to happen in the kingdom. The natural world will be righted as well, and we will rule with him. Uh, now the key for this passage is really uh, what's this passage about? Is this is this these five these four verses here, uh, especially six through eight? Why is the author quoting that? Is he talking about man, or is he talking about the man, Jesus? Who's he talking about? It's a hard one. If you look at it and think about it, what 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 are you thinking? Are you thinking about Jesus, or are you thinking about man? Verse nine makes clear he's talking about both, and then verse nine tells us clearly that it's Jesus. These are related to Jesus, okay, so verse 9, but we do see him who is made a little while lower than the angels, so it's talking about Jesus there because, namely, Jesus. It tells us they're talking about Jesus, but when the author wrote this uh, in the Psalms, primarily thinking about man, God has conferred upon man uh, the ability to rule over to have dominion over so we're talking about both you have to see both in that passage or else you're missing something if it's just about jesus we're missing something about man if it's just about man we're missing something about jesus and then finally verse nine but we see jesus we do not see that mankind has the extended dominion of which the psalmist speaks elsewhere we don't we don't see mankind fulfilling this, but we do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's not just man there, it's Jesus. But we see the fulfillment of all of 6 through 9. We see the fulfillment of it in Christ, who is crowned with glory and honor, and who has received a dominion that is superior, much superior to that of the angels. And then uh, the last point here is... not a secondary point. I want to say secondary. It's not secondary at all. Uh, But at the end of uh, verse 9, I see something pretty nice, pretty important. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with great glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For every man. In the Greek, this is uper pantos, for each and all. Whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, high or low, elect or non-elect, how could words affirm more clearly that the atonement that Jesus made was unlimited? And its nature and design, and and the way God designed the atonement, it was designed to be unlimited. It is so clear there. He tasted death for everyone. We couldn't express it more clearly or more intelligibly than Christ does here, than God does here. That, this refers, uh, the fact that this refers to the atonement is totally evident. For it says that He tasted death for them. This term tasted, gaius ati, uh, means to experience fully. So when we look at other doctrines about Christ, like the Muslims believe about Christ, that he swooned, he didn't really totally die, he passed out. Oh no, this tasted, tells us right here, that he experienced fully death. It's not taste the way we think about it. Uh, oh, touch it to my tongue and oh, okay, nah, I don't like that. No, he tasted it fully, totally consumed it. He was consumed in death. By the grace of God, He tasted death for you, friend. And for that person you had a chat with in the market this week. And for the relative of yours that nobody talks to. I've got that aunt. I don't know if anybody else has that relative. He tasted death for them. And for that coworker of yours who doesn't want to hear about religious stuff anymore. He tasted death for them. Brothers and sisters, this is why we're here, to share the gospel with the dying world. By the grace of God, he tasted death for them, for everyone. I pray that as we share this truth with those we come in contact with, even this week, pray that we do so. So in summation, do not drift, God tells us. Do not drift on by God's holy word. We have to drop anchor there. This is what we must not drift past. If we treat the final revelation of God in Christ like something that we should drift on by on our raft, we have a problem on our hands. The one trustworthy word out there is God's word. Not our leaders on earth. Not the social media gurus. Not the person who's got um, six million followers. And how is our attention to his word? That's what he asks us in verse 1. We must pay much closer attention. And, And God has spoken. Apostolic authority for his word after Christ's death was necessary. He provided it. Confirmation was needed. He provided it. No new revelations now because that would lack apostolic authority. It would somehow think that they could, uh, people who would say that there's something else, we can have a new revelation, somehow they would think that they could top God's revelation in Christ and add to it. Earth is subject to man, all things will be subject to Christ, and all things are subject to Christ. Christ. Uh, we don't see nature subject to him currently, but when he rules, all things will be subject to Christ. And we're looking forward to that day. And finally, why was Jesus made lower than the angels for a time? He was made lower than the angels taking on human form, uh, for a purpose today to taste death for everyone. Can you think of that conversation between the father and the son? If it were to happen that way? Yeah, I'm going to make you lower than the angels for a time. Okay. Why? To taste death for everyone. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would um, teach me by your word and that you would teach all of us by your word and that we would drop anchor in your word and in your word alone. Uh, God, grow us, use us. Pray that we would go from here considering... The possibility, the chance that we might share your truth with the people we come in contact with this week, whom you tasted death for. In Jesus' name, amen.